we have a title this morning. Prayer in Personal Crisis. Crisis are part of life. So it's a topic that affects us all in one way or another. The national crisis, family crisis, personal crisis. So we're asked to think particularly about personal crisis. I don't know what comes to mind when uh, I mention this too, but we all have them from time to time. Some arise suddenly right out of the blue. Others, well, gradually grew up and grew up until the situation reaches crisis proportions. So something we have to face, a problem we have to solve, a threat or a disaster to avoid. It could be a, a life-threatening illness, our, our own, or somebody near and dear to us. It could be loss of employment. Happens to people right out of the blue. What am I going to do? It could be marriage breakup. Family trouble. Or it could be some private crisis that you don't tell anybody about, but it's something very real to you. What must I do? What can I do in that kind of situation? How will I cope? How do I face such times as a Christian? And it is particularly as a Christian faces crisis that I want to talk this morning. The Bible is full of crisis events. You can read them in the stories in the Old Testament and in the New. Just think of the Psalms and David's prayers about crisis, sometimes when he's in one and sometimes afterwards when he's giving thanks. But we're asked to look at the story of Hannah. She was a wife in a God-fearing family. Elkanah, head of the family, uh, made sure that they were living within God's covenant. Every year, he took the family up to Shiloh, about 20 miles from where they lived, uh, and it was time for the annual sacrifice. And after that, they would eat the sacrificial meal together in God's presence. It was apparently a building there, but uh, it wasn't the temple, of course, that Solomon built. We're told that Elkanah had two wives. One was Hannah, the other Penina. Is that all right uh, to say Penina? <laughs> Hannah, he particularly loved. But she was unable to bear children. And this possibly was the reason why he took a second wife, where such, uh, where, where having more than one wife is quite common, and it's often a reason why a man will take a second wife, because his first wife bears him no children. But he particularly loved Hannah. It's a, her predicament is difficult today, isn't it? When children don't come. But it was even worse in those days. In that culture, it was a 
reproach, not just a misfortune, it was a reproach to a woman, a disgrace, a sign of God's favor, disfavor rather. It, it was never thought perhaps that a man might be a fault. We realize sometimes today but the pressure was on the woman. And to make matters worse, the second wife, Benina, set herself up as a rival and mocked Hannah. And this had to go on for a number of years. We're told that Benina had sons and daughters. You reckon about two years for each one, you get some idea how long this had been going on. And it was particularly true at the time of these festivals when they went out to worship. And it said that Hannah, Penina set herself up as a rival and she used to mock Hannah. What kind of a wife are you? What kind of a woman are you? You can imagine some of the things she said. Do you think God's ever going to give you a child, Hannah? And so on. She could have been an encouragement to Hannah. She could have said, look, Look after these two children for me. I've got plenty. You, you take them. She could have done that. Instead of that, she brought aggravation. And this particular year, the usual happened. And at the celebratory meal, Benina was provoking and aggravating Hannah. And suddenly, it all comes up. The thing had been brewing over years. But suddenly, Hannah can't stand it any longer waits till the meal is finished. She gets up. She goes to the temple. Elkanah can't console her. Turmoil inside. Tears welling up. She's in an agony. And she's overcome by years of disappointment, frustration, and aggravation. You can feel for her. Eli, the old priest, sees her distress and thinks she's drunk. You remember it was there in the reading. No, I've been pouring out my soul out of great anxiety, vexation. And Eli blesses her and she leaves and uh, somehow she's comforted. We're not, we're not told why, but she is comforted. She no longer looks sad if she's able to eat. Perhaps she was sure that God had heard her in some way. Maybe the words of Eli had reassured her. Maybe it was just the release of prayer, of having poured out her heart to God. Next morning, they get up, they have a time of worship at the temple, and they go back to Ram. <coughs> in due course, Hannah conceives, and a son, Samuel, is born. He became the godly leader of Israel all his life. And it was through him the history of the people of Israel was changed. So we're asked to, we're asked to look at Hannah particularly. And what can we learn from Hannah? There are those that have exactly the same heartache as Hannah. And at times, this can well up into a real life crisis. But there are other crises we have to face. And there are some principles here that will help us. The first of all, Hannah 
had a right attitude to the situation. She had a right attitude towards Panina. Just imagine all that Panina had been doing over a long time. And you could easily imagine there could be some real antagonism back, even some hatred. But apparently she has no thought of getting her own back on Panina. There are no unpleasant words and no dirty tricks. Don't hear anything about that. And the temptation must have been very strong at times. And uh, the temptation to have a wrong attitude in a crisis. We know about that, don't we? How do you live peaceably with someone that's provoking you? When a crisis arises, we should not be tempted to get our own back on certain people. Harsh words. Or something even harsher. The attitude was right towards Penina. And it was also right towards God. There's no thought that Hannah was blaming God or accusing God of being unfair or unreasonable or uncaring. She didn't turn her back on God. That's quite a common attitude today. Even Christians will do that from time to time. God has allowed this to happen. Well, God isn't doing this. Well, I don't want anything more to do with him. Ever heard that said? You ever been tempted along those lines? Some people are. I remember I was a little boy and I was in the garden. And I don't know what it was about, but I remember walking along the path and saying, God, if you don't do this for me, I won't believe in you anymore. <laughs> little boy. There are other people that do exactly the same, a bit more sophisticated. You didn't do what I wanted, I'm not going to take any notice of you anymore. Who are they hurting? The wrong attitude. Why did my baby die? Why did that accident happen? We can't hurt God by such an attitude. We are infinitely the loser. That attitude comes and we nurture it. Because God always deals with his children in his loving kindness, his loyal faithfulness. That's how he deals with us. What's the point of getting angry at him? We may not turn our back, but we may get angry. I have to confess that we lived in Chad for some years. We had not expected to leave this country at that time. And uh, I think we had about eight years to retirement. We thought our time in Africa was uh, over. And yet the Lord uh, remarkably called us, drew something to our attention. And so uh, with the agreement of a number of others, we went off to France for some language study and we went to Chad. Chad is a tough country. It's very hot, very humid. Times of the year of the harvest and it's very dusty. It's not always very healthy. 
So Jen and I were there, and the team that we had gone to help get started, that was our role. The team was beginning to assemble. But Joan's health was really quite indifferent. It wasn't that she was near to dying, but she was always unwell. Just couldn't help. This began to niggle. And I began to say to the Lord, you've only got to lift your little finger and you can make a better. So easy for you. You, you called us here and you see the difficulty we got here, and there's a job for us to do. And we thought you'd given us a promise that it would it would work out right. I have to tell you that I got very angry. It surprised me actually that I did, but I did get angry, and it took me quite a time to get over. I can't tell you now how it all worked out. Some of my colleagues would say to me, like, well, God's big enough to take it, don't worry. That's, that's not the point. The point here I was, God's child, with an entirely wrong attitude towards him. It destroys your peace. You know things aren't right. You're uncomfortable. It's hard to pray. So if we have a controversy with God in our crisis, we need to get that sorted out right at the beginning. As a Christian, you know it's not God that's with it's you. So that's, that's the first thing in a crisis. Make sure you've got your attitude right. Then the next thing we see, that Hannah takes her problem to the Lord. A great emotion, many tears, but she didn't sort of say to us, well, God knows about this problem anyway. Um, I just hope he's going to sort it out one day or sort it out soon. It may be even that she had thought on her journey up to uh, Shiloh, uh, this time I'm going to the temple and pray. We're not told about that, but maybe she had. But whatever it is, she takes a problem to the Lord. She makes a vow. She's granted the son, as far as she's concerned, he will be dedicated to the Lord's service. It was an evidence of her earnest desire. The boy wouldn't be able to be a priest, which is the wrong tribe, but he could be what was known as a Nazirite, someone dedicated to the Lord. The mark of that was he took no strong drink and his hair was never cut. And it seems that Samuel was such a person all of his life and he served God and his generation in a remarkable way. I believe it's wrong for us to try to bargain with God. I do this for you, but you do this for me. A person who has no time for God might say to himself, well, what can I do? What can I promise to make God pay attention to me and give me what I need? I'll have to promise him something. Let's be honest. What have I got to offer God? He's glorious. He's infinite in his knowledge, his wisdom, his power, his being. 
He far exceeds us. And who am I? I'm a speck of dust in front of him. How can I offer him anything that's going to profit him? What do I think I'm doing trying to offer him a bargain? What does he need that I can supply? God is great in mercy, in grace, in his kindness. Sometimes he has responded to prayers like that. But it's not because of our Bible. It's because of his grace, his kindness. The New Testament does not teach us to make vows in this matter of prayer. Paul is on record once in the book of Acts of having taken a vow. They know quite what it was. And there are four other men that Paul met in Jerusalem who had taken a vow. But uh, these seem to be vows of thankfulness for God's blessing or vows of acts of devotion. Of course, if I do make promises to God, I should keep them. My point is the New Testament does not encourage us to make promises to God in times of crisis. Look at the way that Hannah addresses God. First of all, she calls him in our Bible, in capital letters, Lord. And that stands for the Hebrew letters that once were thought to be pronounced to Jehovah and now more commonly are thought to be pronounced Yahweh. And Yahweh was God's covenant name. It was a name of relationship. And he gave it to his people when he was going to redeem them out of Egypt. And so through the Old Testament, you'll see this name, capital letters, Lord. Whenever that occurs, it means Yahweh, God's personal name of covenant and relationship. And so she addresses God in this way. She was remembering who God was and what God was to her as an Israelite. She remembered God's gracious covenant and all that he had done for his people in the past. And when we as Christians call God our Father, we're doing a very similar thing. We are recalling what I am to him and what he is to me. Father, it's a relationship. I belong to him. Another word used is shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Yes, Lord. He's bringing me to glory. He's working all things for my good, I read. Even this, Somehow or other, he is going to work for my good. We remember his character, his grace, his promises. Lord, Yahweh, Father. Then she goes on. She calls him Lord Almighty. Or other version will have Lord of Hosts. The God who created the sun, the moon, the stars, created the earth, everything in it, all evidence of his knowledge and his wisdom and his power. This God could actually do what she so badly needed. Yahweh, 
Almighty. And she thought this great God was interested in her. She didn't think that. Why did she go to him? And he, our Heavenly Father, is our covenant God too. She kept on praying. She persisted. You know, we only have the gist of what she said here. She went on praying. Eli was watching her. We don't know all she said. If we are truly believers on the Lord Jesus Christ, God is concerned for us as his children. He is interested. So in a crisis, we need to turn to him and we need to remember who he is and what our relationship is to him, what his promises are towards us. Jesus told his disciples that our Heavenly Father is interested in all the daily affairs of our present life. He said, even the hairs of your head are numbered. That's more knowledge of us than we've got of ourselves. His knowledge of us is infinite. He knows and he cares. We don't have to make vows because he cares and he hears us. <coughs> His only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, died for us and brings us right into his presence. He hears us when we pray in crisis. He knows and he cares. So that was her approach. And look, there's another thing. She wasn't a fatalist. She was like a, a stoic. Well, I've, I've just got to grin and bear it and not show distress. I just have to go through this. this is what I have to do in life. She prays to get the situation changed. You can do that. She thought God could do it. She didn't say, well, I must just submit. I must just be passive in this situation. There are times when God intends us to persevere in asking for change. Hannah wanted a baby. She was not rebuked for her persistent asking. Hannah, someone has said, has, is challenging the apparent will of God. Think about the indifference and hostility sometimes to the gospel all around us. Should we pray, well, Lord, help us to come to terms with this and help us to bear it. We say, Lord, change this situation. So there are some things we ask him to change. The first thing is not that, well, Lord, just helps to accept us. We can pray for change. We pray for family members to be converted to our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't just say, well, Lord, help me to accept the fact that it is in Christ. We pray for them. The same person says, Prayer with us has largely ceased to be wrestling. But is that not the dominant idea in Scripture? Look at the epistles. And the insistence on prayer. And uh, sometimes someone is described as wrestling for you 
in prayer. Let us submit when we must, but let us keep that submission in reserve. We can pray for things to be changed. We pray knowing that God is able to change the situation. For instance, the Apostle Paul, he was prepared to suffer, and indeed he suffered a great deal for the gospel in his work. But he still asked people to pray, not just that he would bear the suffering uh, with calmness and so on. He asked to be delivered from it. Pray that I may be delivered. Pray that I may come out of prison. Thanks the Lord for what's happened while I'm in prison, but pray that I shall be delivered. So we pray to see the situation change and God is able to answer. Sometimes he gives us exactly what we pray for in a crisis. We have uh, two friends that had the same difficulty as Hannah and Elkan. And for years there were no people. But after special prayer, she had a baby. And another one soon after, too. Doesn't always happen. God doesn't always grant that. But He is able to. We can ask Him. Same for healing. Sometimes God will answer a prayer for healing. He is able to do it. And we can ask Him. We trust Him to work on our behalf as He sees best. Now how can we sort of round this up? Some practical pointers as I finish. Let's say again, first of all, get your attitude right. Secondly, remember who God is and who you are, His greatness and your relationship to Him. Our crisis has not taken him by surprise. He knows, knows us, and he understands. Attitude, remember who God is. Pray specifically about your crisis. Don't say what he knows all about. Although you may not always know what to ask for, keep committing it to him. Do it believingly. Great. Do it trustingly. You may not even be aware that God is helping you in that situation. And I just remind you of the illustration I gave you last week. This uh, Baptist preacher and his wife had to take decisions on behalf of their 18-year-old son who was seriously unwell. He wasn't able to take decisions for himself. And so they prayed. And they ask God for wisdom. And God has promised wisdom. Any man lack wisdom, then ask of God, and so on. So they prayed. And they didn't appear to get any answer whatsoever. So they went ahead, trusting God, getting the best advice, and taking what seemed right to them at that time. Afterwards, in hindsight, as they were they could see that God had undertaken work in this crisis. He had healed the boy, but the decisions that they had to make were right ones. God had led them, even they weren't aware, didn't know uh, 
I had to trust God who was dealing in that crisis. And then lastly, we have to accept the outcome. God's answer might not be exactly what we prayed for. And that's what uh, I meant just now in talking about let's keep our submission in reserve. We ask for change, we ask for God to do things. But we know in the end that God will do what is right and best for us in those circumstances. Remember the Apostle Paul? He had what was known as this born in the flesh. We don't know what it was. Some people think it was a susceptibility to malaria. He kept on getting attacks of malaria, which are very debilitating. Other people think he had some eye disease that made him look very unsightly. We don't know what it was. But what we do know is that Paul thought that this was hindering his work as an apostle and an evangelist. He was saying to God, in effect, look, I could do much better if only you take this away. I could be far more effective. See what happened the other day, Lord? Now, if you take that away, I'd be much better. And there were three times, apparently, of crisis when he came to God, to his heavenly father. And he asked that this might be removed. And he was a man that had prayed for healing for others and had seen good healing. And he had experienced answers to the prayers of others for him. He found that to happen. So this was all very real. And yet God's answer was, no, I'm not going to do that. There will always be some mystery about God's ways. Always. We will not always know the reason why. But it's never because he's unable to deal with the situation. He can do what we ask, but he may choose to do something different. It isn't because he's unable or not care. But he tells us, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. And so we have to trust him. Now, if we don't get the answer want in a crisis, or the crisis doesn't immediately go away, we will get the same answer as Paul, which was, my grace is sufficient. My working in your life is quite sufficient to see you through this thing which you find so hard. He can take us through what seem to us to be impossible situations. He does hear us. And he does answer. He does care. My grace is sufficient for you.